Welcome to our Monthly Monthly, the show where we discuss articles from our monthly magazine. We've got three writers here today, well, three regulars. Not all writers, I've got one member of staff and two writers. We've got Jen Thatcher, who, wrote, who reviewed Dogtooth and Tesla at the Approach Gallery, and Dave Beach, who wrote a feature called Recovering Radicalism, and Matt Hill, who has been at our monthly for almost 20 years. Um, Jen reviewed Dogtooth and Tesla. It's a show about pattern and the evolution of our attitudes towards pattern in contemporary art. And Dave's feature, we, we put Dave and Jen together because Dave's feature argues that reducing critical art, that it, he argued a bit that critical art was reduced to science code and patterns in, by the act of postmodernism. So we thought there was a productive discussion to be had between them. And, uh, well, let's hope. Um, should we just kick off? Do you want to go on? You've both read each other's stuff and you now get to talk about it. Great. Well, I've got a question for Dave. I'm, I'm really intrigued, Dave. You say in the last few years, art's become more engaged, more directly political and more critical. But um, what is this turning point that you're talking about? I've heard in the last couple of months, everyone's talking about the end of postmodernism, like there's been a sort of symbolic end, whether people locate it um, at the moment of the credit crunch or 9-11. What are you claiming um, by your statement? I'm, I'm not claiming like an end of an era because I don't believe that postmodernism was, was an era in the first place. For me, well, what, what I try to emphasise in, in the article is that I'm talking about how uh, the art world has changed. So it's perceptions within the art world. And when I talk about postmodernism in the article, I'm talking about how uh, artists, critics, curators and so forth uh, received notions of postmodernism and altered them and, and I think that you know if you talk to someone from an English department or something then postmodernism was never as uncritical as this but within the art field postmodernism was this uh, was received as and was turned into a very kind of ironic uncritical uh, sort of um, discourse and what's happened is not we're not at the end of an era of, of, of any sort I don't think but but that kind of discourse has fall, has fallen away so art is no longer dominated by these ideas of irony and of being uncritical or the, or, or the kind of problems with, with critique that, that we had in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. You talk about a difference between direct and indirect approaches to criticality. Um, but who would you say was a good example of a direct approach to criticality? Because I don't really see that artists have changed their strategies that much in the last few years. Well, if we, if we and if, let's take a classic uh, postmodernist doing doing that kind of indirect critique. So, so you've got somebody like um, Ham Steinbach, who is presenting commodities within the gallery on uh, on shelving, um, and that was claimed by some not to be critical art, not to be political in the, in the, in the more obvious ways, but of but of having a critical. Um, of, of uncritical repercussions or, or of, of critical connotations or something much more indirect. But then if you compare that with, with, with the art group Superflex or the art group Wochenklauser or people like that, they are directly engaging with social structures in ways that they, that they think are transformative. But I think, for example, the Superflex exhibition that i just seen at um, South London Gallery, I thought that was really indirect. I think it was using direct... Um, direct symbols like McDonald's, um, the piece was flooded McDonald's, um, as a kind of decoy to be more subtle actually than that. 
or was I getting it wrong? I mean, my, my view of it was that actually they were suggesting that um, you can't just use these big symbols of McDonald's anymore as a, um, as a critique of society. You can't just conflate um, American imperialism with something like McDonald's. Life has got more complicated than that. And in fact, if anything, they're critiquing critique still. But in a good way, they're well, critiquing I, I, our, our reliance on just, just criticising American big business and eco-politics and all this and saying th- that the real politics lies a bit deeper than that. Well, I, I, I don't think that... Uh, it would have been a kind of postmodern position to argue that direct critique is unsubtle. So um, I wouldn't argue that, that you have that choice between doing a direct critique or a subtle critique. I think that superflex are subtle, but I think that they, you know, they're, they're also engaged in, in very straightforward political critiques but but it doesn't stop there it's not it's not like a one-liner political critique it's it, it, it's fully rounded you know they're, they're engaged in, in forms of institution critique they're engaged in a critique of the role of the artist they're engaged in a, in a critique about social relations and they're engaged in a critique of very specific political reference all at the same time so I don't I wouldn't want to imply that what what I'm talking about now is a one-dimensional version of critique but that Critique hasn't got to hide underground anymore. That's that's I think is what's changed. I think that there was there was this force, this discursive force, throughout uh, the postmodernist eighties um, and nineties within art that um, that made critique seem silly or naive or or somehow redundant. And I think that's what that that force that that kept that down. I think has now gone away. Can I just can I just ask you? You mentioned in your piece about John Roberts and how he kind of managed to keep a group of artists or identify a group of artists who were being critical in the 80s Mm. still. So there was a kind of, although there was a period when what you just said, there was a kind of, there wasn't critical art really being allowed. There was, it was still going on. So it was, was it about whether it was a visible existence, you know, or it's invisible? Or you're actually saying it was not possible for it to to have have any effect or even exist really? Well, there, there are, well, I, I talk about kind of several kind of uh, waves in a sense, um, and and I think that um, John Roberts made a very unusual move, which was to argue for the possibility of what he called a critical postmodernism. Yeah, that's right. And and so that that was the f- the first time anyone had done that. Yeah. So he, in a sense, he was trying to do what what Jen's talking about, which is to say we can be intelligent, well-read, philosophically sophisticated, and and be critical at the same time, that they're not uh, set apart from each other. So he was trying to say that he'd, he'd come across artists who were as intelligent, as well-read, as sophisticated as the postmodernists, but could be critical too. And th- the reason that his, his, his book was so important is because no one had argued that those two things could go together before. Now, what I'm arguing in this article is that we no longer need the category of the critical postmodernism of the critical postmodern, because now we don't have that that intellectual force um, pressing down on on criticism at all. So we can just be critical after postmodernism rather than being critical postmodernists. But isn't it true that everybody's being critical now? It's not just artists, you know. Um, what's changed for artists? I mean, even even bank managers are being critical of capitalism now. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and and I wouldn't want to say that that. Um, that the that the changes in art are totally separate from everything else, but but in this article I wanted to focus on the changes that are happening in art, and I think that we need to recognise that that change has taken place. But one of the, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to write the article 
was because there were there were some, if, if you like, remnants of postmodernism within the art institution that were starting to get concerned about about the emergence of all of this critique and whether it was still possible. So you were getting these kind of um, this, this empirical emergence of actual critical works and actual critical practices and projects. And yet some of the discourses were finding it difficult to, to deal with it. And, and so I just wanted to clear up one small thing, which is that if we, if we can nudge away some of those kind of uh, remnants of postmodernism within our thinking, then it makes it a lot easier for us to think about uh, how important this critical work is. C can you just say a little bit about the... You said the reception of those this newish criticality occurring in artwork wasn't well. Was it, can yeah. you who, who examples possible? Was that difficult? It's it's not it's not that difficult. But um, Nicholas Burio in relational aesthetics, as I say in the article, says that he still thinks that uh, that critiquing art is impossible. So. Um, that it's still hanging around. I think I dis well, I do disagree with you. I think Nicola Bourriot shoots himself in the foot sometimes, and I don't think he really means that it's not possible. What I believe he's, he means is that art shouldn't have to be critical. In fact, it often is critical in spite of its original intentions, or not intentions, but he, he does um, react against instrumentalisation of art, and I think that's a good thing. Sometimes he goes too far and suggests that um, art um, that's, that it's difficult for art to be critical, and I would agree with you that that's that's a dangerous thing. But actually, ultimately, I think he he is quite generous to artists and wants to allow them to do what they do without forcing any issues. Do you think Ultramodern is critical then? Do you think that, that he's involved in a critical project? I think I think it is. Um, I'm not so sure that his. His choice, his choice of artists in that exhibition are not directly critical, but I would say that they are um, often unnervingly weird, and that's a good thing. And they're not just, um, they're not straightforwardly critical in the way that perhaps you would want them to be. But for example, um, there's a piece that at first I thought was really, really strange, and I wasn't sure whether I liked it, but the more I thought about it, the, the stranger it became, and the more I saw possibilities of art to really undermine um, systems um, and it was a piece by Marcus Coates um, where he went into um, a mayor's office in Israel and attempted to do his shaman routine and um, asked the mayor if there was a question he wanted answered by Marcus um, and the mayor said well look we've got problems with young people in this town um, we don't know what to do and Marcus came across as as a kind of um, bumbling Englishman who didn't really understand any of the politics there but was doing his best. He was wearing a badger hat, like a badger on his head and um, some kind of hair or rabbit strapped to his um, stomach um, and went through this incredibly excruciating routine of, um, of apparently going into the underworld and um, meeting the various animals there. And then he came out of this um, trance and tried to explain his... Um, tried to explain symbolically what had happened and he was really unable to do that in any kind of satisfactory way and and it was just painful and it was an embarrassing situation but almost embarrassing for the mayor to have even invited this artist to come and try and answer this question and your mind spent I spent more time thinking how did they get into this position where these people were in the same room together and that seemed like a really 
kind of weirdly important thing to do to to inf- not just infiltrate but to just change the way in which meetings happen in which um peace talks happen in which um ways of appeasing diplomacy happens in in a way that we we just take for granted and in fact you know when we see the awkwardness of this um encounter you realize that things do need to be rethought and they're not just as straightforward as two people sitting down and, and saying okay we agree that um this is bad and we need to be um nicer to each other and young people need to um get on and 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 um, appreciate the other side or learn about being um nice people it was obviously more com- complicated than that can i can i just that makes me think of uh, maybe wrongly but you mentioned dave about um claire claire bishop's piece and i i found the essay i think you're referring to which was called antagonism and relational aesthetics where she talks about Laclau and Mouffe's theory of democracy as antagonism and then she uses examples of um Thomas Herschel and Santiago Sierra, having already used other examples of where the antagonism doesn't exist, where artists mm. are seemingly trying to be antagonistic, possibly, or you might think they are. She says, no, they're not. Liam Gillick isn't, and nor is Rick Rick But Santiago Sierra is causing a sort of moment of antagonism, you know, where the viewer is confronted with having to deal with what they feel about something quite extremely really mm. would you i mean you obviously read the essay and and, and thought about it more than me I was, what, could you, what do you think about a the santiago as, a, as an example and then this notion of antagonism or democratic antagonism well i agree with Moof that um you can't have democracy without antagonism so sorry yeah that's right I'll yes put in the right order then. Yeah. um in in the sense that if you if you had no antagonism, if there were no differences, if there were no rivalries, if there, if there were no no more battles to be had, then democracy would be an empty sort of dead state. So um, there there has to be um, some some something to debate. There has to be something to to struggle over, or else. It, Do you mean it, for critical art to be necessary? You, no, I, that, does well, that where critical art comes in? I think what what. what uh, what Bishop's doing there is she's just drawing on 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 their theory of of, of democracy to start off with, and I think that yeah. their theory of democracy is, th- or, or their insistence on the on the, on the value of antagonism is I, I agree with, not necessarily everything else that they say, but that insistence I'd go along with. Where I um, disagree with Bishop is I'm not convinced that the work has to be marked by that antagonism. Right. For, I, what do you mean formally? What do you mean yeah. by marked? Well, she uses the phrase marked. She says that, that Santiago Sierra's work is marked by antagonism, and that makes okay. his work better, more democratic yeah. even, yeah. Than, than someone like Liam Gillick, because his works don't feel antagonistic. They feel, you know, like uh, atmospheric or something. Um, and so you, can't, you don't get what, what, what you were talking about in terms of that extreme experience. Um, A moment of antagonism. Do you but, think but the antagonism can be any can be somewhere else. You see. Do you think, for example, I don't think there's necessarily um, a paradox between being convivial and being antagonistic, like that Marcus Coates piece is kind of both at the same time. And and what something like Santiago Sierra's work does for me is to be so antagonistic that you're totally shut off from it, and you can only 
register your anger, frustration, whatever, which is is useful up to a certain point. But then that's it; it's a one line there. Yeah, I agree with that, and and I I also think that what um, what Bishop is is neglecting is the importance of conviviality for democracy. That as well as having antagonisms, you also have to have communities. You have to have like you have, you have to have interest groups, and those interest groups have to get together. And if all they did when they got together was hate each other, then you wouldn't have an interest group. So then you wouldn't have democracy so you know d democracy also requires us to enjoy being together and sometimes even to enjoy having an argument together and sometimes um, I, I, I think that you can overemphasize that, that antagonism if all we had was antagonism we wouldn't have democracy either she seems to be saying it's kind of an essential thing well there's you? two there's two problems that I've got with that one is is that she overemphasizes it so that she doesn't leave room for anything else that yeah, she yeah. that she values that above all else and the other is that she, she, it has to be placed into the structure of the work for her, that the work itself has to be marked by antagonism. Whereas if, if just plucking something out of the air, if you, if you wanted to affirm something that doesn't exist, so if you wanted to say that you know, a, a future socialist world would be wonderful, if you were a utopian and you made utopian work about another possible world mm -hmm. where men and women were equal, where black and white were equal, where there were no divisions of class and so on and so forth, that would not in itself be marked by antagonism. But I would suggest that that work would have an antagonistic relationship to the world that we now live in. So it doesn't necessarily have to have the antagonism in it and it could still be antagonistic. You, you have a problem with the notion of utopianism or the idea of, of utopias. I, mean, I quite you, like utopias. You do. Or I think utopias are more antagonistic than we think. Right. But they're not antagonistic inside themselves. They're antagonistic no. in terms of their relationship to what we actually have now. I, was, I only mentioned utopia. Well, think, I was thinking about utopia and you, you mentioned it. But in your, when, in your project with Free, hmm. which... Uh, you know, which is a collaborative project, which seems to fit what you were just talking about. I don't really have a question here, really. I just, I just think it's quite important that, you know, trying to relate all this sort of theory and discussion to actual pra art practice is quite mm. difficult. And you kind of are doing that, I feel, when I read an interview with you about your collaborative project with Free. But would you, um, can you, can you say a little bit about free and how that project works in relation to or is that really i mean i'm sorry that's yeah, not no, i'm fair, sure really. i could if i thought about it yeah um, sorry it's it's well i i mean in terms of those different levels of, of the combination of of antagonism conviviality and and other things um you know our, our work tends to uh make what we think of as, as being antagonistic statements but we don't phrase them as negative statements so when we say that protest is beautiful we're affirming something hmm. Uh, and we're we're affirming something that that each of us believes in, um, and and so there's there's this um, maybe an old-fashioned idea that we're saying things that we mean. Um, so so um, whereas I think that Santiago Sierra is doing things that he doesn't believe in. I don't think that he he's he's got a genuine sort of desire to scare people, but he does it as a piece of work. Uh, so he's making this gesture as a point. Uh, and everything that we do in our work, we do because we believe in it. Uh, so, so there's something much more affirmative. Uh, and also, we, as 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 a little kind of group of three people, we never do anything that all three of us uh, can't all agree on. No, so process if one of us, together. if one of us says, "I don't get that," I don't understand why no. we're doing that, then we don't do it. So that so there's this kind of shared experience. But of by it. working together, you are forming a truth. Yes. Would you say? Yeah, that's something like that.
You do, oh, you have used the word truth before. I don't mind. I don't mind the word truth. Yeah. No, not in today. I mean, but can we go back to the sort of earlier moment of postmodernism and the kind of critical potential of it? Because I think a lot of the the original project of postmodernism hasn't really died, and there's quite a lot left to do because, as you rightly point out, there was sort of a moment in the 80s and 90s where a lot of those projects kind of petered out or perhaps even mm. backfired. Mm. Um, and for me um, personally, I'm still, I still feel that some of those feminist projects were, that were begun in um, such um, important ways in the 70s and early 80s kind of fizzled away, backfired, became post-feminist and actually we're in kind of a worse position than we were 20 years ago. And I think perhaps that might be the case for a lot of other projects that were begun. So I'm not totally against some of those those uh, postmodernism per se, but I feel it got too satisfied with itself. And I, I think your point about its critiques being co-opted by capitalism are interesting, but I don't think it's the int- the full story because it, that that cuts off all potential ever. Then I think for. For us, there must be something. Yeah, I, d- I don't argue. I don't think that. I argue that critique has been. Um, uh, okay, others have. Yeah, others have, and and I and I resist that. Um, in fact, in um. In a in an email interview uh, with Mute Magazine recently, they they asked free specifically that question, which is, what do you think about the idea that uh, that the the establishment already, you know, through toleration and so forth, it already accepts all forms of critique and our response to that was come and have a go you know if you if you think you can tolerate critique we're going to give you some more critique and eventually there's going to be so much critique that you can't tolerate it anymore and in a sense it's almost like that's an opportunity for people who want to critique uh, the state of things is the opportunity is that that the people in power think that they can stand it that that it's not going to have any effect so so then that becomes a, a kind of weakness for them I think if they're, if they're not really going to kind of put up a fight against it, if they're going to say, this is, this is irrelevant, this is, this is not going to change anything, then I think that it gives, it gives other people more of an opportunity to do something and to change things. Also, I mean, they only do it when, they, when the political situation is relatively stable, when people are relatively comfortable. It's like adverts, mm. you see all the, um, what they call those people who go and meet in various places. By the um, flash mobs. Bla- flash mobs. I can't remember which advert. I'm terrible for adverts. I never remember what's being advertised. But there's a telephone yeah, ad. Yeah, I mean, everyone's dancing in Liverpool Street Station. Exactly. And you know, I think when that actually happened, police came down and <laughs> didn't really um, tolerate it. But for the purposes mm. of an advert, yes, they do. So it's not that everyone's tolerant all the time of critique. No, no. It's when it suits and when there's money involved and when it when there's a specific agenda behind being edgy. Yeah. I mean, we, we know that that's going to happen, So, but it, it just means that we, that we have to kind of be wary of that question, you know, because uh, we know that um, that tolerance will have a, have a limit and, and, and at some point you, you will have... Um, you. You know, you 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 you'll have power coming against you. You'll have you'll have res- resistance coming the other way. Well, we also know this in terms of anti-terrorist laws that came in the last few years, where suddenly freedom of speech is is something that can be curtailed. Hmm. But I, I going back to your earlier point, I th- I think that you're right that 
uh, postmodernism um, was attempting to to make some important changes, and it failed to make them, which is like my more extreme reading of what what you said. Yeah. Um, and I would I would want to add that I, I think that while while its targets might have been good targets, um, I think that its methods were not necessarily. Um, the kind of methods that I, I would choose to 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 deal with those targets, um, for instance, um, the the question of the relationship between art and popular culture, which was which was uh, treated by postmodernism as 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 just an old fashioned uh, idea which we'd no longer have to deal with, and everything's flattened now, everything's equal now, so let's just play amongst the uh, across the across the border between them, and and. That isn't really a strategy for dealing with what's left over of those uh, cultural divisions and how those cultural divisions have been embedded into institutions and into cultures and into, and into ways of living. So just, just giving permission to work across that border just wasn't enough. So um, I think one of the reasons why a lot of those postmodernist um, projects petered out is because they, they didn't really have the methodology for it. They didn't really have the strategy for actually making changes. They just asserted that things were now different. And in fact, a lot of those issues have come back even stronger and come back to sort of bite us, you mm, know, absolutely. because now we're dealing with not just um, our local issues in our local context, mm. um, but also within um, a much more global framework with technologies and these issues become much more pressing than, than they even were there then. Things are very different. I mean, technology yeah. and uh, communication is just so different, isn't it, from the 80s? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and, but also politically, you know, because during the 80s, or at least at the beginning of the 80s, the, the workers' movement still wasn't dead. You know, there was still a possibility of something changing. And it wasn't until uh, you know, mid to the end of, of the 80s that, that we found ourselves in a really different political situation. And the same for other things as well. Can I just nip in, getting one last question, because we have to wrap up. Do you think, can you just comment on the credit crunch? It seems there's a lot up for grabs with a lot of sort of quite substantial restructuring. This, this has to be our last question. I thought I'd nab it. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it does seem a time when a lot of institutions are particularly vulnerable. They've come in under so much criticism that there's an opportunity to get in there and be quite radical in the way that things have been kind of raised to the ground. And yeah, I think it's a very complicated situation. I think one, one thing is that the, the, the credit crunch is the first global recession, so we're dealing with, it with an unknown quantity. Yeah. I think what I'm asking is, as someone who would advocate radical criticality, do you see the credit crunch as an opportunity? I've noticed that some people seem to be saying it's yeah, a great I know. opportunity. And, I'm just and that's what I'm trying to avoid saying because I don't think that it's true. I think that uh, what, what, what we're seeing now, and it's almost like we're seeing it clearer as, as each day goes by, is that the, the people who are most likely to suffer from a credit crunch are the poorest people. Um, so there isn't really this sense of, 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 of an opportunity, I don't think. Uh, more, um, more a sense of, of, how, um, of, of how awful it's going to get. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not celebrating the credit crunch at all. No. And, I, and I'm not seeing it as an opportunity for, for radical political activity either because I think that it, it's very unlikely. 
Okay, last words, Jen and Matt, have you got anything? No, thanks. No? Yeah. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope everyone else did. Thank you so much for coming. You've Thank been you. brilliant. Um, if you want, if listeners want to read Jen and Dave's features, they're in the current issue, along with an interview with Francis Elise, review of the New York, New York Book Fair, um, report of art sales post-credit crunch, feature on the proliferation of the use of philosophy and contemporary art, and the usual reviews, book reviews. Um, check out Resonance FM. There's a subscription offer for Art Monthly and listen again next month, 13th of March. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.